I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we mark the 100th anniversary of the Espionage Act of 1917. Happy birthday, Espionage Act! Signed into law 100 years ago this month by President Woodrow Wilson, the Espionage Act criminalizes any attempts to undermine U.S. war efforts, and since the publication of the Pentagon Papers in the early 1970s, individuals who leak government information, and the journalists who cover them, have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. The volume of prosecutions grew under President Barack Obama, and with the recent arrest of Reality Winner, the first alleged leaker under President Donald Trump, there's the promise of even more. Are there constitutional issues raised by Espionage Act prosecutions? What may the government prosecute or not consistently with the First Amendment? And more broadly, what should we think of the Espionage Act on its 100th anniversary? Joining me to discuss this important question are two of America's leading commentators on national security and the Constitution. Paul Rosenzweig is the founder of Red Branch Consulting, a homeland security consulting company and senior advisor to the Chertoff Group. He's a lecturer at the George Washington University Law School, my valued uh, colleague and the author of Whistleblowers, Leaks, and the Media, The First Amendment and National Security. And Stephen Vladek is professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law. His teaching and research focus on federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, and national security law. He's co-editor-in-chief of the legal blog Just Security, a Supreme Court analyst for CNN and co-author of leading casebooks on national security and counterterrorism. Paul, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Uh, Paul, let's jump right into the reality winner case, the first Espionage Act prosecution under Donald Trump. Who is reality winner and what is she be being prosecuted for? Well, uh, reality winner is uh, a, a former uh, employee uh, who ha was had access to NSA-related materials, in particular materials that bore upon the salient question today in American society, namely Russian intervention or alleged intervention into the influence of the last presidential election. Uh, apparently, uh, she uh, is charged with having provided uh, copies of a classified report on that issue to the press, uh, in particular to a group called The Intercept, which is associated with Glenn Greenwald, um, who earned his stripes in the uh, in the most famously in the in the Edward Snowden uh, disclosures. Uh, Miss Reality Winner also uh, wins, if you will, the award for uh, most easily identified and charged uh, leaker in the history of America. She was apparently arrested and identified within uh, 48 to 72 hours of uh, the government becoming aware of the leak, in part because of uh, her own. Uh, uh, foolishness and in part perhaps because uh, of some uh, inadequate uh, 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 efforts by the press that had received her discussions. Um, I guess uh, she is she's a millennial. She's 25 years old, uh, which has begun to raise questions about whether or not 
There's a difference in how millennials perceive secrecy obligations from uh, older school people. She is, uh, uh, was, uh, it's been reported, motivated by a desire to show that, no, no, it really was Russian influence. So she might have had a, a good motivation. And um, by and large, uh, you know, she hasn't pled guilty. So all of the, all of what I've just recited is allegations taken from the public press and should be taken with a grain of salt unless and until she uh, is uh, is convicted. Thank you for that really helpful introduction. Steve, a reality winner is being charged under the Espionage Act, which, among other things, makes it a crime to obtain information regarding national defense with intent or reason to believe the information will be used to hurt the United States. Can you tell us more about the provisions under the Espionage Act with which she is being charged? And are there any First Amendment issues raised by her prosecution? Sure. I mean, so the Espionage Act is a you know, relic of another time when it comes to the drafting of criminal statutes. It's a very, um, I think it's safe to say, vague statute. It refers very loosely uh, to terms that basically we didn't have vocabulary for in 1917. So, for example, the Espionage Act doesn't refer to classified information. That terminology came later. Jeff, as you say, it refers to information related to national defense. And the two most important criminal prohibitions in the statute can be found at uh, 18 U.S.C. sections 793D and E. Um, and what these two sections do is they both make it a crime to basically disclose to someone not authorized to receive it any information relating to the national defense, which in cases like Reality Winner's case includes information like the classified intercept that she's alleged to have disclosed to the intercept um, about Russian efforts to interfere with the 2016 election. Now, Jeff, what's important about 793 D&E um, is that, you know, as you mentioned, it's intent or knowledge, right, that the perpetrator doesn't have to specifically intend harm to the United States. He or she just has to know that the information if disclosed to someone not authorized to receive it, could harm the United States or benefit a foreign power. Obviously, in the context of national security information, that threshold is often, if not usually, met. And then, Jeff, the only real difference between 793D and E, 793D is where the relevant perpetrator um, was authorized to have the information in the first place. So it's when someone who properly has access to, let's say, a classified file, then leaks it to a member of the media, for example. 793E um, is when the individual in question did not lawfully have access to the information in question. And one of the things that's interesting about Reality Winner's case is, whereas most leak prosecutions are brought under 793D, because in most leak cases, the, uh, the leaker lawfully had access to the information, Reality Winner is actually only being charged under 793E, meaning that the government is of the view that she did not actually lawfully have access to the information. She basically stole the information from the government and then turned it over to the intercept. And I think that's interesting because the larger constitutional concerns about the Espionage Act tend to be focused on 793E, not 793D. So why don't I, I stop there before I totally lose everybody? Thanks so much for that, Steve. Uh, Paul, Steve raises the question of whether there are more First Amendment issues raised by leaked prosecutions where the leaker had the information lawfully or not. Uh, can you say a little more on the legal merits of the case against Reality Winner? 
Uh, is there a strong case that she violated uh, the section that Steve mentioned? And are there any First Amendment concerns raised by the prosecution? Well, assuming the facts as portrayed in the press, the case against reality is, is really quite strong um, as a factual matter. Uh, and uh, her, her First Amendment defense is relatively weak. The courts have not looked very kindly on people who have uh, been in her position. The main First Amendment issues that we talk about uh, in this context actually are reflections from my perspective, about the recipients. In this case, uh, the intercept, or in other cases, uh, other outsiders who are receiving this information uh, in the context of being the recipients of alleged whistleblowing uh, revelations about malfeasance, misconduct, and uh, omission by the government. We obviously uh, want very much to foster the press's role as uh, the fourth estate as a, as a check on executive excess. And much of the issue that arises relates not so much to the rights of the leaker to speak uh, so much as the rights of the uh, press hearer to hear. Uh, and um, there have been only a couple of instances in history in which the government has leaned into the idea of prosecuting the press for receiving stolen uh, classified information. And those have mostly been very fitful and relatively um, unsuccessful in, uh, in both in their theoretical development and in their practical explanation. And that, I think, reflects very much the uh, strength of the First Amendment uh, principles that undergird uh, much of our constitutional discussion. We're going to, it's going to take an awful lot uh, for a successful prosecution of a, a valid member of the press to be the as a recipient of classified information. So uh, reality probably doesn't have, in, in my view, much of a leg to stand on, either factually or as a First Amendment speaker. Uh, but um, certainly uh, the uh, recipients at The Intercept are at the core of our uh, free press and, and are unlikely um, to uh, be within the government's zone of inference, uh, of, of interest. Wonderful. All right, now we're squarely into the First Amendment discussion. Uh, we the people listeners, I want you to go to the Interactive Constitution and read Jeff Stone's individual explainer on the First Amendment, where he lists leaks as one of the three issues involving freedom of speech most pressing for the future. And Jeff distinguishes... Uh, uh, or rather notes that the Supreme Court has held that the government can't prohibit the publication of classified information unless it can demonstrate that that will cause clear and present danger of harm to national security. That's New York Times and Sullivan, the Pentagon Papers case. But he notes that the court has held that government employees who gain access to classified information can be restricted in their unauthorized disclosure of that information. And that's the SNEP case from 1980. Steve, can you tell us more about that distinction introduced by SNAP and New York Times and Sullivan, what has the Supreme Court says said may and may not be prosecuted consistently with the First Amendment? Sure. I mean, so I think the, the key here is to sort of go back to what Paul was saying about the difference between a government employee qua leaker like reality winner and a member of the press or even the public who receives classified national security information. It's true, I think, 
that we all expect the First Amendment to distinguish between the government employee whose rights to speak publicly about matters he or she learns as a government employee may be somewhat circumscribed, and the rights of the press and the public to know what the government's doing. Um, the problem is that the Espionage Act doesn't actually draw that distinction, right? That the Espionage Act treats the same. Someone like Reality Winner, who as a government contractor, um, you know, exercises gains, unauthorized access to a secret piece of information and then leaks it, and the recipient of the leak. And so that's where the mess comes in, which is the Espionage Act does not distinguish, and so presumably the First Amendment has to. With regard to the case laws distinction, so in New York Times versus United States, the Pentagon Papers case, um, the Supreme Court refused to uphold efforts by the United States to enjoin the publication of national security information to wit the Pentagon Papers um, based on a very strong view of First Amendment limits on prior restraint, that basically the government had to have the most compelling interests to prohibit the publication of information. And even in the context of classified national security information, um, the government still had a heavy burden, which it had not carried in the context of the Pentagon Papers. But several of the concurring opinions in New York Times versus United States um, laid the seeds for what the court would come back to later in SNEP and other cases, which is, yes, there are really strong limits on the court's power to stop publication, but that's not the same thing as prosecuting after the fact for the unauthorized disclosure of national security information. Indeed, Justice White goes out of his way in the Pentagon Papers case to say he believes the New York Times and the Washington Post had a right to publish the Pentagon Papers and then be prosecuted for it under the Espionage Act. So we have this weird distinction where the court is incredibly protective of publication, where the court is very protective of the press, um, but where the court is very skeptical of protecting those who are directly responsible for the wrongful disclosure of classified national security information. And then the million dollar question becomes whether the First Amendment will ever provide a defense in that case, right? So is there a difference between the First Amendment defense that The Intercept could offer um, if they were prosecuted for publishing the information Reality Winner provided to them and the First Amendment defense that Reality Winner herself might have. The assumption that I think everyone labors under is that the answer is yes, but there's very little case law to that effect. And I think that's the big question here. Will there ever be circumstances where someone like Reality Winner is leaking information of such profound national importance um, that the courts actually might recognize some kind of First Amendment public interest defense, or is the First Amendment issue here really about the downstream retransmission of the information from the leaker? I think that's the big fight. That's great. Well, uh, not the fight, but your explanation. <laughs> uh, Paul, can you take up the big question that Steve addresses and uh, say there were a, a prosecution of, who would it be, Edward Snowden, who might raise this public interest defense? Uh, that Steve talks about, uh, describe to us what the case would look like and what you think the merits of this defense might be. Well, Snowden has said publicly that one of the reasons he refuses to come back to the United States is that he would not be permitted um, to raise this public interest defense on his own behalf to defend his, uh, his leaking. And I think that that's probably an accurate assessment of where uh, the law is right now, 
Um, many of the people who have uh, been charged in, in the last 20 years with leaking material uh, have said that they did so in order to expose uh, perceived malfeasance, misfeasance, or nonfeasance by the government. Um, and uh, routinely, uh, that defense has been uh, rejected as a legitimating ground for the leaking of classified material. Uh, the most recent one that I think uh, uh, affirmatively raised that defense and had it rejected by a court, um, it, it was Thomas Drake, who was an NSA uh, employee uh, who uh, tried to uh, disclose what he thought of as uh, a wide-scale um, waste and misuse of, of money in the construction of an NSA uh, computer system. And the court simply said, you know, your motivation doesn't really excuse your conduct, and you're not going to be allowed to put in evidence of that motivation. So I suspect that for Snowden, uh, if he were to come back and say, I did it to protect America and Americans, while that might resonate uh, with some people uh, as a political matter, um, it would not, it would be very likely that he would not be allowed to, um, uh, to raise that as a defense himself. On the other hand, um, if a charge were brought against the recipients of Snowden's leaks, uh, say uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, uh, and let's put aside for a minute the really interesting question of where to draw the line between journalism and non-journalism and, and which side of that line um, Julian Assange falls on and WikiLeaks falls on. Let's Let's assume for purposes of the rest of, the, my, of this answer that Assange is uh, legitimately a, a, a journalist who could assimilate himself to the same First Amendment protections as the New York Times or the Washington Post could. Um, there, the courts have tended to be um, more protective. The only uh, really uh, uh, interesting discussion of this that comes close uh, that I'm aware of was in a, in a case involving leaks not to uh, a journalist, but leaks to uh, APAC, the American-Israel Political Action Committee. Um, and, that, and in that case, um, the, uh, some, of, some of the charged people were the APAC recipients of the leaked information. And Judge T.S. Uh, Ellis, who was a, who's a district judge in the Eastern District of Virginia who was hearing the case, essentially um, set an extremely high bar of proof with respect to the recipients, not not the leaker himself, man named Franklin, but the the, the recipients, and said that in order to um, uh, for a crime to be committed, the accused had to have sought to benefit the, another nation as well as harm the United States. And and there the the argument was, you know, that you were going to have to prove that by set by passing information on to APAC and then allegedly on to Israel. The intent was to actually harm the United States, and that was uh, a specific intent requirement that was too great a burden, and the government wound up, in the end, uh, foregoing that prosecution. So we have a sense that uh, it may very well be that if Assange were prosecuted, he would get the same benefit, that is, to, that the requirement would have to be proved not that he knew that it, just that he knew that it might harm it, harm the United States, which was, as Steve said, the general rule about classification, but that in leaking the information and publishing it, he intended to harm the United States, which uh, for most journalists would probably be an impossible burden for the government to show. Uh, 
Very interesting indeed. Uh, Steve, Paul raises uh, this question of prosecution of recipients, which more broadly raises the question of prosecution of journalists. What is the legal status of prosecutions of journalists? Uh, what has the practice been in terms of the, did, did President Obama attempt to prosecute journalists? And, and uh, President Trump has talked about possibly prosecuting uh, Julian Assange. And is Julian Assange a journalist? Tell us about the status of the, uh, the, the recipients. Sure. I mean, so the problem when it comes to journalists, once again, starts in the vague and old text of the Espionage Act, which really doesn't distinguish between um, downstream recipients of leaked national security information based on whether they are a foreign government, um, a private person or a media organization. Everyone is the same for purposes of the statute. You know, Paul is right. Um, that in the, the APAC case, Judge Ellis went out of his way to read into the statute more First Amendment protection. And it's worth noting, the APAC case is the first time ever that the government has tried to prosecute anyone um, under the Espionage Act who was simply a third party. That is to say, who was not the original leaker or the original uh, thief or spy, but simply someone who received um, information that someone else had leaked. Um, and as Paul said, that prosecution fell apart when the district court required the government to meet a heavier burden. So the law is somewhat unsettled here. Um, there are internal rules within the Justice Department that are supposed to make it harder to go after uh, journalists and other media organizations. But we know that during the Obama administration, there was a specific point where one journalist was indeed named as an unindicted co-conspirator um, in an Espionage Act investigation and subsequent indictment, um, partly to allow the government to obtain certain kinds of surveillance and other information about and from the journalist. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the law is in a very uncertain, unsettled, and uncomfortable equipoise when it comes to whether a journalist or even any other third party could be prosecuted simply for receiving and or retransmitting leaked national security information. And so I think that's part of why it's a distraction to worry too much about whether Julian Assange is a journalist or not. Um, historically, you know, at least in this space, the distinction hasn't really been between journalists and non-journalists. It's been between um, the primary thieves of the information, the spies, the leakers, and the downstream recipients. And I think the concern that is widely shared is once the government successfully crosses the line from prosecuting just the initial leaker to prosecuting any downstream recipient of leaked national security information, um, that line, you know, that's crossing a constitutional Rubicon when it comes to the press, however we define the press, because they're next. And so I think that's why there's been all this pressure to draw the line, not where the statute does, um, but actually between those who are initially responsible and those who are simply the, the downstream recipients. Uh, Paul, do you agree with Steve that that's the right place to draw the line or not? What do, you, do you feel that uh, journalists should be able to be prosecuted and uh, does the Espionage Act uh, draw the line in the right place or not? Well, I agree with Steve. If, if this is supposed to be a debate, you're, you, you've got the wrong guys, I think, Jeff. Um, I, I agree with Steve that the journalism distinction is not drawn into the statute, um, and, and, uh, or, and nor is, frankly, the originator-recipient 
distinction. And so Steve is right that if we cross that line, we might not be able to draw another line between uh, recipients who are, uh, uh, you know, uh, foreign governments, recipients who are business competitors, recipients who are spies, recipients who are um, anybody other than journalists and journalists. And one of the reasons we probably can't draw that line today is because um, the growth of technology has made it very, very difficult to uh, determine who a journalist is uh, at this point. Both Steve and I write for blogs and we write opinion pieces and we sometimes report information that's come to us. Does that make us journalists in the in the in that sense. I, I certainly don't think of myself as that way, but I think by any practical definition I might need it. Um, I am uh, very comfortable uh, with the idea that uh, journalism uh, should be outside the bounds of potentially prosecutable uh, criminality uh, because I think that the uh, First Amendment and the value more importantly the values of transparency and accountability that undergird the freedom of the press are uh, too critical to the functioning of an American democracy to countenance prosecution of journalists. For myself, if I could draw a good line between uh, uh, journalism of that sort and other recipients, um, I would like to explore that because I do think that uh, some recipients who foster, who um, who are uh, engaged in economic espionage or engaged in polit political uh, disputes uh, have access to grind other than journalists uh, might be people who we would want to deter. Uh, but uh, as I said at the outset, I can't imagine how to draw that line. I find it almost impossible to do so theoretically and in practice. You know, the Assange case is a is a great example. You 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 poll ten people and you get nine different answers as to whether he's a journalist or not with gradations. Um, and so, uh, like Steve, I default to the uh, provider recipient line, but mostly uh, because I can't imagine any uh, the success of another line. I, and this one is easy to police and easy to draw. It's a bright line test. Great. Uh, well, there's no need to uh, disagree here on this wonderful constitutional podcast uh, because the First Amendment unites uh, people of many different perspectives. But I do want to explore whether there are any differences uh, between you. Um, Steve, do you think there should be a public interest defense for reality winner? Or why don't you make the strongest case that you believe against the constitutionality of leak uh, prosecutions? And then we'll, we'll see if Paul agrees or disagrees. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that Paul agrees so much with what I think. That's, that's unusual for me. Um, so, so I guess the, if we're, if we're going to draw the line for constitutional purposes at, you know, originator versus recipient, and I think there are folks who would say that's actually not a good place to draw the line because there might be contexts in which the recipient is actually facilitating the underlying crime as opposed to just a, you know, passive recipient. But if that's where the line is, then I think the real First Amendment question becomes about whether even the originator might ever have a First Amendment defense. And I suspect that's where Paul and I disagree. Um, there are plenty of folks who think the answer is never. I am not one of them. Um, I think you know we have an analogous context where the Supreme Court has recognized a species of a public interest First Amendment defense that I think we could map onto this context. So in the context of public employee speech, 
Um, there's an old case from the 1960s called Pickering versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court says, listen, if you're a public employee um, and there are you know, confidential internal matters that you're not supposed to, to publicly speak about, um, you still have a First Amendment right to speak if the information about which you're speaking is of such public interest and concern that the cost to the government employer of public disclosure is outweighed by the value to the public discourse and public knowledge of what you're sharing. And this is known as Pickering balancing, um, and it's a doctrine that's applied for better or for worse in lots of you know, public employee speech cases. Not surprisingly, many of these involve public school teachers, of which I, I must confess to now being one. Um, the question is whether Pickering balancing could work at all in the context of you know, national security leaks. That is to say, could we imagine a scenario where a leak was of such surpassing public importance and of such monumental value to public discourse that the um, value dramatically outweighed the harm to national security from the disclosure of the relevant information. You know, it's going to be a difficult balance to strike. I suspect that in most cases, and reality winners might be a good one, um, you know, the balance is going to be pretty heavily tilted actually toward the government. But imagine a scenario where someone is leaking information, say, about a planned military coup, and by leaking the information, he or she is actually able to stop the coup in its tracks. Um, I would like to think that in that context, you know, we might all agree that even though the leaker violated the letter of the Espionage Act, the public interest was so dramatically and materially benefited from that particular leak that the leaker should not be subject to prosecution. Um, you know, the question is whether that's obviously an extreme case. Snowden, I think, is a much harder case because even though some of the materials that he disclosed were of obvious public concern and involved programs that at least some courts subsequently invalidated, like the bulk phone records metadata program, a lot of what he leaked wasn't. Um, and so I think, you know, the question is not who falls onto which side of the line, but whether it would ever make sense to have this defense at all. I think the strongest case is to look at Pickering and to think about those contexts where the public discourse is just so dramatically benefited by having this information out there that a prosecution would be antithetical to that. Wonderful. Paul, Steve has thrown down the gauntlet. Should we apply Pickering balancing to some Espionage Act prosecutions and recognize an expanded public interest? defense. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I'm glad we found something to, to debate. I, I, <laughs> I disagree. Um, and I, I think it's because in the context of national security, it, it's a categorical imperative rather than a, a balancing imperative. Most of what we talk about in public schools is, is the type of thing that involves um, uh, issues as to which the public is part of the decision-making process or rightly might be thought of as part of the decision-making process. I am concerned that adoption of a Pickering balancing test would foster more reality winners who would think, okay, now I've got a, a plausible defense here. Um, and that would uh, essentially empower every individual employee of the government to make a decision about critical uh, national security matters for which they are essentially not qualified. This isn't to argue that all of the government's classification decisions are right. They assuredly are not. 
Um, uh, and But it is to argue that there are robust whistleblower protection systems in place right now in which a person in who has found uh, a misuse or, or, or abuse that they think can be remedied of that sort have mechanisms of reporting both to um, you know the, the the Congress and internal to the inspectors general. Uh, there are there is a uh, a bar in the in the in the district that specializes in helping people who think they've got issues with how the system is being administered find legal ways to make reporting. And if you want to argue about re improving whistleblower protections, I'll 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 go with you there. But a constitutional right uh, to disclose classified information that is potentially damaging to uh, national security of the United States is too blunt a cudgel, if you will. It is, in my judgment, uh, so unlikely. I mean, the fact that Steve has to reach for a potential military coup in order to try and find a case in which we might all agree um, is... Um, is indicative of how rare it is and how much the uh, development of a balancing test would actually involve us in pernicious uh, balancing litigation rather than achieving the objectives we want. I mean, I think, actually, I think Edward Snowden's an easy case, uh, precisely because his uh, disclosures were far greater than were the amount of information that he provided about, uh, about um, issues critical to the United States uh, public, the uh, the metadata uh, collection program. And so, you know, for my money, at least, you know, anybody who goes beyond that barest minimum really has lost the public interest argument already. And allowing them to make it is simply allowing for distraction and the cluttering of, of the judicial system and encouraging disappointment, uh, encouraging disclosure where we shouldn't have it. Uh Thank you for that. Steve, you can respond if you feel you need to, but I do want to uh, go back to the history of the Espionage Act since we're marking its <laughs> 100th anniversary and we have to prepare for our hearty singing of the birthday song. Um, tell us what Woodrow Wilson was attempting to achieve when he introduced the Espionage Act and signed it into law on June 15th, 1917. And then tell us about some of those really controversial early prosecutions under the Espionage Act, including that of Eugene V. Debs, the socialist candidate for president in 1920, who actually ran for president from his jail cell because the Supreme Court had upheld his Espionage Act prosecution. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, before, let me just briefly, just in response to Paul, very quickly. I mean, I do think that Paul doth protest a little too much. I mean, I think you know, if it really is going to be the case that a public interest defense would be so seldom successful, the government employee who might, by Paul's view, be encouraged to leak is going to actually be taking a rather significant chance with their liberty, since the Espionage Act is a pretty serious statute. Um, you know, if you're prosecuted and convicted under it, it tends to produce a pretty long prison sentence. So, you know, I, I think that's not really as big a deal as Paul says. But um, if we go back in time to 1917, you know, I think it's worth remembering that on, you know, this is the eve of the United States entry into World War One. Um, there's a lot of, you know, anti-immigrant xenophobic sentiment floating around the country at this point in time. There's a lot of concern about especially German infiltration 
of the U.S. institutions. Um, and so the Espionage Act is really born against the backdrop of World War I, um, and it's motivated by you know, this sort of desire to subvert um, efforts to undermine what was viewed as like the, the democratic goal, efforts to push against the U.S. You know, stance um, toward democracy, toward the war, et cetera. Um, now, the, part of the issue, of course, is that the Espionage Act um, is written before the Supreme Court's modern First Amendment jurisprudence. It's written before the Supreme Court's modern vagueness jurisprudence. And so it's written in very capacious terms. Um, the deal that Congress basically made under the direction of, of Charles Warren was to pass a statute that was not um, the Official Secrets Act that was enacted in the United Kingdom in 1911 that was a far more sweeping categorical um, prohibition on disclosure or discussion of national security secrets, but one that was sort of close in spirit to the Official Secrets Act while still recognizing at that point the very limited First Amendment protections that we had already accepted. So you get the Espionage Act. Um, now, there are, as you say, some pretty important early prosecutions under the Espionage Act. Eugene B. Debs um, is convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison for a 1918 speech in which he denounced the Espionage Act, um, which you know is, is an irony that I think would would not float very well with modern uh, lawyers and justices. Um, and the you know the Supreme Court upholds the sentence even though it's eventually commuted after the war. Um, the Espionage Act is also modified by the Sedition Act of 1918, um, although those were temporary amendments. But so we see you know the Supreme Court getting these early cases. Debs is one. Schenck versus United States. Um, where you know the government file, uh, prosecutes Charles Schenck for mailing anti-draft letters to draftees that read, do not submit to intimidation. Um, the court said that those weren't protected by the First Amendment, that they were you know, uh, a violation of the Espionage Act. Um, there's also the Frowork decision uh, later in 1919, a prosecution of an editorial writer um, for denouncing the United States' involvement in World War I. Right. So, you know, we have this trio between Debs, Schenck and Frowork of pretty weak First Amendment doctrine um, in the face of pretty aggressive Espionage Act prosecutions. I, I have to say, I think those precedents have been you know, discredited by the court and by commentators. But the Espionage Act is still here. And I think that's why on its 100th birthday, you know, our focus has shifted away from the sort of the Debs and the Frowork and the Schenks of the world and toward the reality winners and the Edward Snowdens. Thank you for that great history. Uh, we the People listeners, so much good reading on the history of the Espionage Act, and I'm going to just start by recommending Thomas Healy's phenomenal book, The Great Descent, about Oliver Wendell Holmes's descent in the Schenck case involving the uh, Espionage Act, where he and Louis Brandeis changed their minds about the constitutionality of prosecutions under it. It's just a riveting intellectual history of the evolution of free speech. Paul, tell us more about that history, the early prosecutions, and why it is, as Steve said, that today, although we can't imagine locking someone up for denouncing the Espionage Act or denouncing the draft, we do allow the prosecution of leakers uh, who have uh, broken their understanding of confidentiality. Well, it really is a fascinating history. Steve is absolutely right that the act was um, overused as a means of trying to suppress political dissent in the World War I era. Um, it pretty much 
that pretty much ended in World War II. Uh, there's a case from 1944 called Hartzell, and Hartzell was actually a, a World War I veteran who was, uh, who was distributing anti-war pamphlets. Uh, and uh, the court overturned his conviction for a violation of the Espionage Act. Um, what I think is remarkable about it is that even at that late date, the vote was only five to four to overturn his conviction. Um, and, and the court did so in one of those grudging opinions, which said, even though this guy is a complete and utter, uh, you know, a-hole and, and, and nobody in America likes him, we're going to defend his right to be, be, uh, be like that. Um, since that time, the act has trended very much more towards the prosecution of spies. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, mid-20th century, lots of Soviet spies uh, were indicted. Uh, uh, or, or alleged uh, communist spies were indicted and charged with various versions of the Espionage Act. And, uh, and today, I would say pretty much um, because of uh, things like the Pentagon Papers case uh, and, and the SNEP uh, reading of it, it's the, the act is more or less res restricted to use for prosecutions of people who actually uh, uh, distribute uh, and disperse classified material in violation of, uh, of their obligations. So the history, you know, which also included you know, uh, the Red Scares and the Palmer Raids from back at the early start of the last century is, um, I hope, uh, no longer uh, an active component of the Espionage Act as it's being used today. Uh, uh, Steve, what was it that made those kind of prosecutions impermissible? Was it was it New York Times versus Sullivan in those cases? And then take us up to the Obama era and explain to us how it was that the Obama administration brought more Espionage Act prosecutions uh, in two terms than all previous presidents together since 1917. Sure. So I think, you know, there were a couple of different developments in the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence that overtook at least the original prosecution theory of the Espionage Act. Um, you know, the first was just a much more robust protection for political speech. And, you know, we see that really in the 1950s and the 1960s, where the court becomes much more sensitive to laws that appear to be content or viewpoint based um, and applies much stricter scrutiny to those kinds of statutes, because the concern is that you know these laws are having the effect of censoring unpopular speech. Um, and frankly, we had another you know reaffirmation of this principle um, just this week um, when the Supreme Court in the Tam case right uh, struck down part of federal trademark law um, on the ground that you know it's not up to the government to police disparagement and the like. Um, so I think that was one important development. I think the other was you know the Brandenburg case um, also in the 1960s. Um, when the Supreme Court basically says, listen, you know, even sort of antagonistic speech really should not be prosecutable, should be protected by the First Amendment up until the point that it's actually inciting imminent violence, um, which is not obviously what any of the original defendants under the Espionage Act were really trying to do. It wasn't even the government's theory. Um, and so that's why the focus has shifted away from, as Paul says, you know, using the Espionage Act to prosecute unpopular political speech and toward leaks. Um, now, with regard to the Obama administration, I mean, I think it's worth noting, it's not that the Obama administration brought the most Espionage Act 
prosecutions in the history of the statute. It's that it brought the most leak prosecutions under the Espionage Act, where the theory of the Espionage Act prosecution was not that the defendant had actually committed espionage or some other nefarious-like crime, but that the defendant had actually just wrongfully disclosed national security information in almost all of those cases to the media, right? That was the real sort of development in the Obama administration. And I think the uptick is, you know, a co- re- the result of a combination of factors, including how much easier it has become for the government to investigate these cases and to identify national security leakers, um, as we saw in the reality winner case. It used to actually be very difficult. The government really had a hard time trying to figure out, for example, who Deep Throat was. Um, Technology has, I think, changed that, and with it, the government's desire and interest to bring these cases. So, you know, I think that's why the terrain has shifted to where we're not using the Espionage Act in the, I think, obviously nefarious way it was used at its inception. And instead, we've moved to this sort of, you know, less obviously unconstitutional, but also less obviously sort of heart of the Espionage Act territory, where its principal aim, its principal utility today is to go after anyone who wrongly discloses national security information, regardless of their motive. Uh, Really interesting. Paul, uh, do you agree with Steve's uh, notion that the Espionage Act now is used to prosecute leakers rather than critics, and the technology makes those prosecutions easier. And then I'm going to ask, uh, before closing statements, uh, President Trump has uh, expressed a desire vigorously to prosecute leakers. Um, how have previous presidents fared in their efforts to prosecute leakers, in particular President Obama? And is President Trump likely to be successful if he really tries to ramp up the Espionage Act prosecution of leakers? So um, taking the first part of that, I, I agree with Steve that um, that uh, increased technology uh, capability makes it much easier to identify leakers. Um, the story of uh, Jin Woo Kim, uh, who, who leaked a classified North Korean cable uh, from the Department of State to a, a Fox News reporter is pretty instructive because it was made completely on the basis of uh, metadata investigations, uh, you know, email communications, phone call communications, um, and uh, and even entry and exit swipes from the Department of State, all of which pretty much uh, created a compelling case without ever once asking, having to ask the journalist who his source was. Uh, and uh, so that, I think, is very striking. I do think that there's one other aspect to this that Steve didn't mention, and, and he may disagree with me. Uh, But my perception is that over the last 20 years, the nature of press reporting on classified information has changed uh, to something that is somewhat more adversarial, if you will. Uh, Fred Kaplan, who's a a journalist at, at, I think it's, uh, now teaches at, I think, Columbia, um, said that, you know, in his day, uh, if the journalists received classified information, but that it, but it was not indicative of misfeasance, malfeasance, or nonfeasance by the government, uh, he would honor um, a request not to publish it. So, for example, if he received classified information about how NSA had gotten into Chinese computers, um, he would honor a request not to publish that detail since it seemed to be exactly what NSA should be doing. Today, journalism seems to have taken a turn to the view that all classified information is inherently newsworthy 
and ought to be published. And that is part, I think, of what has generated the pushback, particularly in the Obama administration, in an attempt to restrict the flow of classified information to the press, uh, because in, to some degree they are less confident of being able to convince the press of um, the disutility of publishing it. And so that's, um, uh, you know, we could talk about why that happened. Par partially it's, it's the Snowden revelations which real which seemed to disclose the fact that some of what they were asking the press not to, not to present was stuff that the press should have been presenting. So uh, there's that dynamic going on as well. But I think it's a, it's a counteraction to this change in the balance. As for uh, the prospects of success with, um, in the Obama administration and in the, the, the Trump administration, the, uh, the story really is one of an increasing ability to be successful in these prosecutions. You know, we've already talked about Drake and Manning. Uh, we haven't talked about Jeffrey Sterling and, and John Kirikow, uh, all of whom are people who uh, have wound up under uh, significant investigation and, and, and face prosecution. And, you know, Snowden and Winner will probably be, uh, Winner for sure, Snowden may be added to that list. So uh, if President Trump is uh, indeed determined to... Uh, throw more resources at leak investigations, broadly writ, uh, I have no reason to doubt that he would be uh, as successful as the Obama administration was. All right, it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments, and I think the question is this. Given the restriction of Espionage Act prosecutions today to leakers rather than to critics of the government, does the Espionage Act pose a threat to First Amendment values or not? Steve. Can I say maybe? <laughs> um, <laughs> Right. I mean, I think that the short answer is um, it does in the sense um, that it is unsettled how it could be applied to downstream recipients of leaked information, including the press, um, that the right or wrong president could use the capacious text of the Espionage Act to try to suppress um, press in the United States, to try to suppress the publication of matters of enormous public concern, um, that, you know, the perception that all leaks harm national security, I think, is a dangerous piece of this puzzle. That's not true. Um, and it's not what the statute says. Right. And so, you know, I think the Espionage Act, the problem is, I think, very well summarized by um, professors Hal Edgar and Benno Schmidt, who in 1973, um, when the Espionage Act was a far more uh, dapper um, you know, 56 years old, um, basically suggested that the Espionage Act lives in the state of benign indeterminacy, um, where the problem is that if you really push it to its limits, it would actually create a number of serious First Amendment concerns and problems, um, and that the courts have sort of shied away from resolving that one way or the other, and that the government has shied away from testing it. So, you know, I guess the short answer to the question is, the Espionage Act does pose a threat to First Amendment values if a president were ever aggressive enough to use it literally. And I think that's the point at which we're going to want to be very careful to, you know, not just sort of categorically dismiss the idea that there should be a public interest defense, um, that the press, you know, is somehow differently situated from the public, um, and that the leaker, him or herself, might have such few and limited First Amendment rights in that context. So, 
you know, it's all about what happens going forward. And I guess now is a particularly opportune time to be worried about presidents who might be especially zealous and carefree in their use of this kind of open-ended, um, speech-threatening criminal statute. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Paul, last word to you. On its 100th anniversary and given its uh, focus on leakers rather than critics, does the Espionage Act pose a threat to First Amendment values or not? I tend to be more sanguine than Steve and to think that the answer is almost certainly no. Uh, I think that uh, its current indeterminacy is more in theory than in practice. In practice, uh, the press has been uh, immune from uh, prosecution, and I have a relatively high degree of confidence uh, that the courts uh, would uh, read into the statute a very robust First Amendment defense, if not an absolute bar to prosecution, um, if any judge were, uh, if any president were minded to try it. Um, that having been said, um, like most good lawyers, I abhor ambiguity. And uh, if it were up to me and I could do so um, in, a, in a thoughtful way with a non-contentious Congress, uh, I would certainly be in favor of changing the Espionage Act uh, to clarify that it applies to uh, the leakers and not the leakees. Uh, uh, and that would uh, resolve statutorily uh, this issue without necess necessity of recourse to the uh, Constitution. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think that that's um, a very likely prospect uh, at all, and I tend to worry that opening up the act might actually drive the statute into greater conflict with constitutional principles than into, uh, into agreement with them. And so uh, I am, uh, I, I find myself comfortable that a hundred years of uh, uh, of no disaster portends a uh, hundred more of uh, equally benign ambiguity uh, and no disaster in the future. At least that's my hope. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Steve Loddock and Paul Rosenzweig, for an illuminating, thoughtful, and uh, really useful discussion about the Espionage Act of 100. Whether uh, we pose a threat to First Amendment values or not, all of us deserve a hearty uh, happy birthday on our 100th birthday, uh, just as many of us uh, enjoy benign indeterminacy in our 50s. So it's now time to sing the happy birthday song <laughs> to the Espionage Act at 100. Here we go. Happy birthday, happy birthday to, you. to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Espionage Act of 1917. Happy birthday to you. Okay, gentlemen, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. And many more. <laughs> Steve, or no, not. Or not. Okay, perfect. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, We The People listeners. See you next week. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. And sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. We've had so many great programs recently, and I want you to see the videos and later hear the audio. 
Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Remember, Live at America's Town Hall is the audio feed of our great town hall program, so you do need to listen to that if you're not already. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of our sister podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, this is the pitch, friends, but I want you to sign up to be members of the National Constitution Center. You are such loyal listeners. You write to me and tell me how much We the People matters in your lives, how much it helps you to be lifelong learners about the Constitution and to signal that appreciation and engagement and commitment to lifelong learning I want you to go to constitutioncenter.org, sign up and become a member so you can get our emails and find out about all the incredible programs and be part of this great community that's supporting our mission, which is to promote national constitutional education and debate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.